Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Church, it is so good to spend the Lord's Day with you. I want to welcome those of you that are watching all over the world. I know we have uh, family around the world, so if you're watching in Norway, welcome. If you're watching somewhere in South America, Central America, welcome. Uh, I know uh, I was talking via the, the email exchange, the only way that seemingly any of us can communicate, and just people are so thankful all over the world for the ability we have to come together uh, through technology. So praise the Lord. I want to thank our tech team that so uh, tirelessly worked during this time to, to bring these uh, services to you in a different way. And so I'll make sure and offer up a prayer for all of our tech team behind the scenes and various cubby holes around the facility uh, making all of this happen. So uh, praise the Lord for that. And I, I want to remind you, uh, this is not forever. Um, I do believe that this uh, lockdown's going to end, and we are probably more than halfway through it. And so uh, be encouraged, be strengthened, and would you join me? Let's pray. We'll pick up in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, uh, down to verse 23 in a study that has two parts, the many Beatitudes. But before we dig into the word, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, we come in the name of Jesus, the mighty name in the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who has all authority and all power, the one who cannot be defeated. We come in the name of Jesus and we bring ourselves before your throne of grace and we just ask, Lord, uh, that you'd be merciful unto us, your people, Lord, to the world. As the world struggles during this time, God, would you be that ever-present help in a time of trouble? Lord, we pray for those that are physically suffering and emotionally suffering. We pray for those that are financially suffering. We pray for those that are mentally suffering. We pray for our leaders, Lord. Be with our president and Congress, our governor. Uh, Lord, for the governors of the states as they try and make heads or tails, make sense of all of this and uh, when to lift this uh, ban we have on, on public gathering. And so we pray for great wisdom. Uh, we thank you for our leaders, Lord, whether we agree with what is going on or do not. Uh, Lord, your word declares that we are to pray for those who govern us. Uh, they're not a threat to us. They're there for our good and not evil. And so we pray for wisdom for them. Bless your word as we read it and encourage us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we turn our attention now to just three verses, uh, as we look at what was normally uh, called the Sermon on the Mount, I want to remind you that the gospel authors uh, saw things from their own personal position, from where they lived their life. In this case, you have Dr. Luke. Now, probably some of us are far too familiar with the way doctors handle things. If you've been watching the news and uh, some of the reports that have specifically come out of Washington, D.C., uh, with Dr. Bricks and Dr. Fauci. Probably most of you are getting sick of hearing from them. But I would also tell you at the same time, you can kind of see how they approach communication. It's very cut. It's very dry. It's very specific. It has very little emotion. and It only gives the basic details. Remember that the author of this gospel is a doctor. This is Dr. Luke. And so it should make sense to us that we have now come to what we call the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we find this abbreviated or truncated version of the Sermon on the Mount, and it gives specifically the highlights. And I like to call these the fast food Beatitudes because it's very condensed. If you read through Matthew's Gospel, you find a completely different uh, treatment to it, far more in-depth, more detail. There are more things spoken, more words used, extremely 
uh, in depth, if you will. But Dr. Luke hits the high points, just like the doctors that we're listening to right now uh, on our news media. Just simply the facts. And so as we pick up in verse 20, I'll look at these, if you will, if you've been to college and you've used Cliff Notes or Spark Notes, uh, anything that's a synopsis, uh, this is pretty much what you have here in Luke's gospel, but very important word for us uh, during this time as the Lord would speak to us. In verse 20, it says, and then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, now context again is very important. Often it's everything. And so if you read the verses that we left with before Easter, you're going to find out that there is a multitude that's gathered. I believe this is the same multitude that's mentioned in Matthew's gospel, and these are one in the same events. But there is a multitude gathered, but it's as if the disciples are in a group by themselves somewhere sitting in this crowd, and Jesus now begins to address really the disciples but he's allowing everyone else to hear what's going on. And so he's speaking to them specifically, his eyes toward his disciples and said, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And so Dr. Luke begins the Sermon on the Mount uh, as recorded here in the Gospel of Luke. And it begins with this, this incredible study in opposites, these contradictory things, these things that when you look at them, there's just like, I don't even know that I can believe that. This seems impossible. And so Luke, as he differs a little bit from Matthew, as Matthew says, this event takes place on the mountain, and Luke says it takes place on a level place or a plain, it's no problem at all. Linguistically, if you look at it, it's basically saying on a plateau or simply a level spot, which obviously could be on a mountain as well. And so this description of a life of blessing, what does it look like as the body of Christ if we're to live a life of blessedness or blessing. In a Jewish mindset, the context of this particular time, as Jesus is no doubt speaking largely to a crowd that would understand this from a Jewish perspective, these things are polar opposites from their basic understanding. And you're living right now in a time where you're living polar opposites of what you believe life should actually look like. What a blessed life looks like. Maybe some of you are gaining a greater appreciation for your pets. Some of you might be getting a deeper appreciation for those that are your family, that you're actually able to be near. Some of you, if you're like myself, I, I go out in my backyard and I think, wow, this is a vacation. We went from the living room to the backyard. You, you see, our blessedness very often comes from the same things that the Jewish people struggled with. You see, they thought that blessedness was long life and wealth and large families, uh, a full barn, complete control, lack of conflict, they looked at it from a very earthly perspective, and Jesus is now talking to the disciples and said the really blessed life, the wonderfully blessed life, is a life that is unlike what people expect. It's very different than the world's definition. And in fact, God had spoken through the prophets to some degree that a life of blessing was a blessing from the Lord. And so he's not 
saying that everything that comes into your life that's good is bad. He's not making that case at all. He's simply saying that blessedness doesn't come from possessions. Blessedness doesn't come from people liking you. Blessedness doesn't come from you being poor versus rich or rich versus poor. It isn't a matter of one thing versus the other thing. Blessedness is an internal attitude of heart that takes whatever place you're in and allows you to see it the way God sees it. To work in your life, to move in your heart, so that as the Apostle Paul will go on to remind us that in whatever state we find ourselves, we've learned how to be contented. In other words, blessed in the moment, blessed in the place. Yesterday, I, I have to confess, we, we did a little breakout. Um, we didn't break any laws, by the way. I want to make that very, very clear because there are still parts of our state uh, that are private property that are open to people to go use. We found one of those uh, in the area of Malibu. We went for a little walk, a little hike. You, you see, you could look at it, well, we can't go to the state park. We could look at it, well, we can't go to the national forest. You can look at it, oh, I can't go to Disneyland. You look at it, well, I can't go to the mall. You can, you can look at it from the position of what I can't do, or you can look at it, God still blessed us. He's still a blessing God. In spite of what we can't do, God is still a blessing God. That's the child of God's position. That's our default. That when things are hard, God is good. When things are good, God is good. When we have little, God is good. When we have much, God is good. When people don't like us, God is still good. And so church, this is a new way of living. And it was going to require some new ways of thinking in order that the disciples might be able to adequately put forth the gospel message. They couldn't keep what they had learned through Judaism. They couldn't keep what they had understood through their minds. They needed to have a new way of thinking for a new way of living. And that's the picture here in the Beatitudes. It was time, in essence, for the children of God to grow up, to mature, exactly as Paul says in Galatians 4, in the first six verses. And he says there, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from the slave. Though he's master of all, look, in Christ Jesus, one day you're going to inherit the Father's riches. You are rich in Christ Jesus. But sometimes we live our lives as though we're still paupers because our attitudes have not changed to meet the expectation we should have of who we really are. The truth is, I am a child of the king, and I one day will inherit the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. But Paul goes on, but is under guardians, stewards, until the time appointed by the Father. And so even we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so a new way of living is now in view for us. And it's not like the old way. We were being instructed by the elemental principles of the world, Scripture says. And now we're being instructed by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the bearer of grace. And so this dawning of a new day requires some new ways. And, and in that sense, the disciples had to kind of unlearn some things. They had to learn new ways of thinking would be another way to look at it. You, you might even be wondering, I, I mean, I would have, if I were a prosperous doctor or a fisherman or a tax collector, these guys might be thinking, what have I done? How are we going to get from point A to point B? I'm following this guy that has clearly said he, he's the son of God. But at the same time, he has nowhere to lay his head. We've done nothing but glean in the fields ever since we started following him. They might be wondering, what is it that we're going to get out of this? Brothers and sisters, family of God, 
People who love the Lord, disciples, the ones being addressed in this passage. If you're a disciple today, if you're listening to this message online, let me be really clear. Blessedness in life is not from you getting anything. It is not from you doing something for the Lord. It is from you being who God has called you to be by grace and through faith. That's who we are in Christ. That's why the law can't do what the Spirit does. This is the truth, really, of the gospel life lived out. You see, the sermon is not the gospel itself. You can't get to heaven by following the Sermon on the Mount. But if you are going to heaven, you're going to live out the Sermon on the Mount. It's internal. It's not external. It's not the law. It isn't all of a sudden you just know things that other people don't know and you do them. It's you have been transformed by the renewing of your mind. And because of the renewing of your mind, you now think differently. And because you think differently, you act differently. Church, this is so important. You know, we're all focused in on, you know, what may happen with the Supreme Court of the United States or how does this lockdown affect the Constitution? Are we giving up our rights under the First or the Second Amendment? You know, what's going on here? Do we have the right of assembly? You know, the disciples might have been thinking, man, is this the Constitution that we're supposed to follow here? But this is not a constitution for the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is in heaven. That's why Jesus said, I I pray that thy will be done on earth as it is already in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is heaven. And we have some of it here on earth through the way we live our lives and through God's people expressing this blessed life. But this is not just simply a constitution for us to live by. This is a diagnostic tool whereby we can look at my life, I can look at my life, you can look at your life, and I can go, do I actually rejoice when people revile me? Do I get my value from God, or do I get my value from how much food I have in my cupboard? Is my life dependent, my blessed state, Does it come because I'm rich? Because of the number of friends I have? Or does it come because I know that I am a child of God destined for heaven? And that no matter what happens on this earth, one day I'm stepping out of time and into eternity, and that eternity is going to be beyond my understanding and knowing. You see, when you look at this passage from that perspective, this passage applies to our lives today in the sense that they can help us understand where we ought to be going and what we ought to be doing, how we ought to be living. But it's really also reminding us that this kingdom is God's kingdom and it's not of this world. That's why Christ's peace, when he said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives you peace do I give, but I give you my peace. His peace is a kingdom peace. It's a blessed peace. It's the rest of heaven. It's what we will one day have in fullness that we can have in some measure as we live this way here and now. I want to give you just a little outline. I think they're helpful at times. And as we go through this, you'll see these various pieces come together. In the first six verses here in verses 20 and 20 through 26, which we'll get the second half of that next week, you, you see our attitude, if you will, towards circumstances. You see, that's what this is. It's how do we view what happens in our lives from a kingdom perspective? How do I live my life in light of, you might say, the fact that my circumstances are now governed by God? We'll also see how we ought to have very specific attitudes towards other people. 
You see, right now you're probably thinking if I get yelled at again by somebody walking down the street who's wearing a mask and I'm not wearing a mask, somebody's going to get hurt. But there is a way we ought to think about that person. And from a biblical perspective, I have to see them as the Lord sees them. I have to understand what they're going through, not from my perspective, from heaven's perspective. That's how I learn to love unlovable people. That's how I learn to deal with situations that are brought into my life by other people in a way that's pleasing to God. We'll see as we get to verse 39. There is a way that we ought to think about ourselves. You know, part of the problem, matter of fact, I would say the biggest problem I have is me. I'm the problem very often. And this attitude of be attitude is a way that I can look at myself. We'll also see as it finishes the way that we ought to have our attitude towards God or towards heavenly living. You you see, it's going to change our attitudes. It's going to govern the way I think. You see, we sometimes forget that the way we think directly affects the way we generally act. If I think wrongly, then I'm likely to act wrongly. We're going to get our attitudes adjusted. We're going to get our thinking squared away, straightened out. We're going to get our theology adjusted at times. You're going to be amazed at who you see in heaven. You're also going to be amazed at who you don't see in heaven. How we relate to the things that God wants us to be, that's what matters. We're going to see these four essentials for true happiness. Throughout the totality of our time in the Sermon on the Mount, there are four essentials. Can I just tell you, you can't live a life of beatitudes unless you have faith in the one who can give you that, and his name is Jesus Christ. These things are absolutely impossible unless you know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They are so antithetical to our humanness that they are humanly impossible. These are things that can only come to you by the Spirit. There are things that can only come to you if you know him. So it comes through faith in God. A second essential is you're going to understand you're not the center of the universe. These things are all aimed at others first. We look at other people, their needs, their specific things first. Man, is that great against our world or not? Look, let's be clear. Most of us, when we wake up in the morning, we do think about ourselves, amen? When I go to the mirror and I look and go, man, you look terrible. That is disgusting. You better fix that. Because my hair is like, I don't even have that much, but it still manages somehow through that eight hours or so of sleep, turn into like this weird-looking thing that's on top of my head. Now, because I care what you might think, I'm not going to even go out and get the mail until I do something about that. It's the same reason you don't wear your house coat if it's 9 o'clock to go out and get your mail. Why? Because you are concerned about other people and what they think. Now imagine that from God's perspective, he is always focused on other people. That's why Paul said, whom does not care for his own self? In the same way that we think about ourselves, we're supposed to love other people. I'm supposed to want the very best for them, the best impression, the best thoughts, the best words, the best actions, the best outcomes. A third thing, and this one's going to be tough for some of you, honesty with yourself. Honesty with yourself. You have to look inside and say, you know what? I'm not all that. I'm not actually already perfected. There's work still going on in my life. When you see other people through your own faults and failures, guess what happens to you? You become uber- gracious. 
marvelously merciful. You, you, you do not hold other people's faults against them. You look at their life the way you know your life is. When you look inside first, it enables you to see outside correctly. Make no mistake on this. If you will not look at yourself, you have no business looking at other people. Look at you first. Ask yourself some simple questions. Am I perfect? Would I want mercy and forgiveness? Or would I want judgment and condemnation? When I look at me, those questions are easy. And the fourth and final part of this is obedience to the will of God. God has a perfect will for you. God's word declares what that will looks like when it's lived out. And so church, this very simple outline, these four essentials, along with these four focuses, if you will, you're going to see that they're going to grate against some of the things that you think or understand from the way the world looks at these particular characteristics in our lives. The world says you ought to grab some for yourself. The world says you ought to be concerned with yourself first. The world says this is my body. I can do with it as I want. God says, no, it's not. That's my body. I paid for it with the blood of my son. It belongs to me. You see, that's a very different attitude than the world's attitude, isn't it? In that sense, the Beatitudes are a study in opposites. This 12 verses is all that we're going to find here, really, that uh, encases what we would call the Beatitudes. It's an astounding series of conditional blessings. Now, in Scripture, we have conditional blessings and unconditional blessings. Conditional blessings mean that there is a condition. There's something that we need to do in order to experience that blessing. There are unconditional blessings. Unconditional covenants. God made promises to Israel that are incumbent upon him and him alone. They are unconditional. But he also said, if you do these things, then cursing's coming your way. In this case, the Beatitudes are conditional. And so it is incumbent upon us to do these things, to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. It is incumbent upon us to live lives of faith because faith without works is dead. Church is going to challenge your thinking. If you want to have happiness, if you want to have bliss in your life, then you'll take this very demanding message and go, Lord, what would you have me do? How would you have me change? As Jesus sets these things out, you know, I've talked to people that said, you know, I don't even like that message because it just steals all of my joy. And I'll ask him, well, what are you talking about? They'll go, well, you know, I can't do this and I can't do that and I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do that. You know, it's just the opposite of the way we actually look at the world. Exactly. You got the point. It's a study in opposites. So instead of being me-focused, narcissistic, I become others-focused. Instead of me concerning myself with what pleases me, I'm concerned with what pleases God. It's the opposite of the way your flesh will react. This thing is going to strike dead your flesh. What does it mean to be blessed? What is it really? It's an interesting word, and it basically means exactly what you think it means. Happy, fortunate, blissful. That's the kind of happiness that God wants for you. That is exactly what he wants in your life. It's the type of happiness that every parent wants for their children. You know, when I think of my boys, when I think of my sons, there has never been a time in my life I go, you know what? I just hope God crushes them. I, I really hope that they just go through hell. You know, I, I, man, I just hope their motors blow up in their cars. 
and I hope their homes burn to the ground, and I hope they're miserable. I was a father. I want my children blessed, happy, contented. And so you know what I tell my sons? Check the oil in your car. Take care of your homes. Look over the things the Lord's entrusted to you. Be faithful in every way to the Lord Jesus who purchased you. I tell them the truth so that they will understand the way to blessedness in their life is not easy. It's going to be some work at times. It doesn't just come because you got up in the morning. It doesn't just come to you. You know, I, 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 let me just give you a little pet peeve of mine. If I have another person come to me that tells me that they're worth $100,000 a year because they went to college, I, I'm going to have to go out and do a primal scream. Because you went to college does not make you worth anything. Knowledge puffs up. Now, if you can couple that with some drive, some organizational skills, some actual job skills, you can actually do something beneficial, then maybe you're worth that $100,000 a year. So knowing about the Beatitudes does not make you live them. You have to do it. You have to go put that to the test. That's what blessed means. It means when you go out and you live out these divine paradoxes, when, when these things which seem impossible, which are actually an objective reality, but they're only made available and actually possible through a spiritual reality, which is I'm being like Christ. You see, there's an objective reality of being blessed. Happy, blissful, fortunate. But that doesn't come through just simply what I do. But I do have to put in practice what I claim to believe. And so these things then all of a sudden become both things joined together. I understand what it means to be, as Paul said, I'm going to be content there in Philippians 4. Whatever state I am, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned to be full. I've learned to be hungry, suffer need to abound in things. And that verse that we all love to quote, I then can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? You can't do all things through Christ who strengthens you if your whole goal is to simply have more. You have to be okay with having less. You have to learn to live on both sides of the equation. That's the blessed life. You have to find the good in having a flat tire in the middle of the Mojave Desert. You have to figure out what it means to still love God when things are not going the way you expect it. It's interesting that all these things are actually characteristics of God himself. That's why David, as he wrote the 68th Psalm, he ends this Psalm with this declaration, blessed be God. God is just blessed all the time. As we live out this type of life, we also are blessed in that sense. Now, you might be saying, well, man, I don't know, Pastor Jeff. I don't know about this whole thing. How do, I don't even know that I want to do this. But these magnificent promises are antithetical, and in the same way, they're the only way. You can't have a blessed life any other way, as far as a believer's concerned. Why do you think that so many professional athletes end up bankrupt? Because they find out exactly what your Bible teaches. Money can't buy you everything. It can't buy you real friends. It can't buy you happiness. No amount of money can buy you happiness. Now, not that I follow Madonna, but I was reading an article about Madonna. She was suicidal last week because she is no longer popular. 
She hates her life. She's dating a man almost 40 years younger than her, hoping that somehow she's going to have happiness, blessedness, and it's not working. The Kabbalah has not helped her. All of these things that the world seeks after have not helped because blessedness is a state of heart and a state of mind and then a state of living. Blessed be God. God is blessed. If you want to be blessed, you need to live your life the way he wants you to live it. You might be saying, what did you say? Look, this is real simple. Blessed are those who are disadvantaged. Is that a paradox or not? Blessed are those who don't have. Blessed are those who are poor. You know why? Because everything a poor person has brings them the proper understanding of its value. But a rich person hasn't got a clue generally. They think if I just have a bigger car, I just have a bigger house, I just have more money, I have more things, they think that the blessedness is attached to the wealth. So Jesus is not saying wealth is bad. He's saying it's a hindrance to true blessedness. And we'll cover this next time in the woes, the hindrances. So Jesus says in verse 20, blessed are those who are disadvantaged. The next one is crazy. You see, the first one is like, you can get it. The rich young ruler got everything his way and it didn't work out. The rich fool ends up in spiritual bankruptcy. The the rich man ends up in Hades, in Sheol, in Luke 16. We're going to see that played out over and over and over again. And so Jesus says, look, be better if you hungered now. Be better if you didn't have now. And then he goes on to say, blessed are you who are distressed. You're actually worried about these things. You're concerned with them. Now, most of us don't go around, man, I hope I'm distressed today. I hope I get disadvantaged today. Or the third one, I hope I'm detested. I hope everybody hates me today because of my relationship with the Lord. I just hope people really don't like me. What did you say? You can kind of see the disciples' ears kind of, you know, like your dog does, kind of turns towards you when you say, you know, let's go get a treat. The disciples are going, did he say what I think he said? We're supposed to really be okay with it when people hate us? Now, I want you to see something here because it pertains to you right now during this lockdown. When they exclude you, when you are outside looking in, when people don't want to be around you, now this is a little bit of a stretch, but it's still true because the focus here is because of your faith. And that's not why we're isolated from one another, generally speaking, right now. But the same feeling is there, isn't it? We were created for fellowship. We were created to be around each other. And so blessed are you when people exclude you and revile you and cast you out. Even use your name as a swear word. Cast out your name as evil. In other words, they change it from something good to something bad. Blessed are you, but only in the one context for the Son of Man's sake. In other words, your name is evil because of who you are in Christ. You're cast out because of who you are in Christ. You're hated because of who you are in Christ. You're a believer, and that's why people at work don't want to be around you. They call you a freak because you sit at your desk and you read your Bible during your lunch break. People make up stories about, oh yeah, this is a Jesus freak. And the fourth thing here is, blessed are you when your object of adoration 
is in heaven, not on this earth. Blessed are you when you're looking so forward to heaven that whatever this earth has got going on is okay. You still consider yourself blessed. So magnificent is heaven that when we look towards heaven, everything on earth takes its proper perspective. You see, my problem is very often I look towards heaven and then I look back at earth and I go, well, you know, right now I'm on earth, so I want to be like people on earth. I want to have a heavenly perspective all the time. Not just when I'm in church. Not just when I'm around other believers. If you can't see beyond this current age, if you can't see beyond this current life, you will never have this kind of blessedness. You won't have it. Because the life that I now live, I live for him. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy good things. It doesn't mean that we don't look forward to vacation. It doesn't mean that we don't look forward to getting out of this silly lockdown. It just simply means that in light of heaven, these things are small things. These things are little things. Luke ends with what I I would say is the whole biblical picture. You see, this message is in direct contrast to the message of the Old Testament. And in fact, the very last book of the Old Testament actually ends in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, with a curse. Gospel living now moves forward and says, we're blessed in gospel living. They feared the hand of God that that hand was outstretched still and they knew there was something wrong and they couldn't actually fix the problem. But now because of the cross, because of our relationship, because Jesus is looking at the disciples, people who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, the disciple looks at life not like the Old Testament prophet put the horror of God's judgment over everything. He's like, man, you guys don't repent, you're dead. I'm already dead. I count not my life dear. I've been purchased by the blood of the lamb. And so this blessed life is now available to me right now. The children of Israel could only look forward to that day when Yom Kippur was no longer needed. It's no longer needed now. Because my sins have been actually forgiven not just simply atoned for, but actually forgotten, put behind the back of God. They're as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no longer. And so this picture that we now have is no longer the weight of the lightning and the thunder and the warnings of judgment and the cursing. I now live in the marvelous light of the gospel. I live in light of Mount Zion, the thing that Abraham saw from afar off as he went to offer his son Isaac. I now live that life. What Abraham believed by faith, I now possess. I can possess a blessed life. But I have to lay hold of the truth to get it. And so there are at least four things. There's probably more. I'm sure I've skipped some that you can draw from this reasons, if you will, why this message is so important to us today. Number one, they were disciples. It shows the necessity of what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. Because the old you can't live like this. The unredeemed you can't live like this. Your flesh can't live like this. Only the person who's experienced the new birth can live like this. A second thing, I have no hope, zero hope, of living like this in my flesh. Why? Because these things are the opposite of my flesh. My flesh says, take hatred. No way, I'm going to hate you more. I'll get you back. 
So instead of vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I'm saying vengeance is mine, says the Jeff. I will repay. You take something from me, I'm taking it from you. Twice. That's what my flesh does. So this is only for God's kids, and it's only in that hope of the new birth that I can live this way. A third thing. This gives us a pattern for true success, true happiness. When I look at this, these things are all God first and me last. They're God first, me last. They're not me first, and God is something that I interject into my life periodically so I can kind of get back on track, sort of. It's God first, me last. And in between is everybody else. Man, that's different than the world, isn't it? Maybe different from how you're living today. If I want to find the way of joy and peace and contentment, I have to put God first. His will be done. He's got to be first. He cannot be an additive. He's got to be first. And a fourth thing. The maxims, if you will, of this proclamation. The things that are described here. This is a life that's pleasing to God. You've been put on this earth to glorify God. That's the chief goal of man being here is to glorify the Lord. I'm supposed to bring him glory and honor and praise. The only way to do that is to live like this. This is the life that pleases God. And so church, whenever you buy a product, and I realize that we live in the digital age, as the worship team comes back up and we're going to close in song today. But as we think about this from an earthly perspective, you buy an appliance or a power tool or a TV or a new cell phone, there is a manual. It might be digital, might be online. Maybe it's you're pointed to a YouTube video or something to watch. But if you really want to know how something functions, the person you want to ask is the one who made it. Amen? You want to go to the manufacturer's details and his specifications for multitudes of reasons. You were designed to do something specific. The one who designed you tells you what that is. You also, if you want to know what you can't do, you see, if you buy some power tools, they're not hammers, amen? You don't take out your brand new plunge router that costs you $350 that you use to hollow out mortises on a door jam and use it for a hand. You don't go out and whack some stake into the ground in your backyard. Why? Because it was never designed to do that. You'll ruin it. So you go to the manufacturer. You go to the Lord. Lord, how do you want me to live? What do you want me to do? What do you not want me to do? You also have to learn how to care for that tool. You use those tools. You don't sharpen those bits. You, you put something that's dull on there and you use that same router to, to go do something else other than it's designed to do and you will ruin it. And if you do not follow God's beatitude living, you will ruin your life. You also understand that there are limitations. If you do not live like this, if you live outside of the limitations, you will not have victory. Church, it's pointing towards our inner life. It's pointing towards that James 2.20, faith without works is useless. It's pointing towards that Ephesians 2.10, we were created in Christ Jesus for something very specific, good works, that we should walk in them. You see, this is the truly blessed life. Before the worship team leads us in a, in a couple of choruses, you see, they're very gifted musicians. Now, I can play a little bit. I think my voice is okay. 
but I'm not Ludwig von Beethoven. And if I sat down at a piano and you color-coded the keys for me, I might be able to hit the exact notes of the Moonlight Sonata in order. I, I might be able to pull that off. But it will sound nothing like the Moonlight Sonata. It's mechanical. What's the problem? The problem is exactly what the Apostle Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. You see, what someone who mechanically does with their own will, that which is an internal thing of the soul, you see what happens is knowledge puffs us up, but it's the Spirit that gives life. Paul put it this way. He said, and we have such trust through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Church, this is about the Spirit in us who dwells earnestly to cause our lives to externally display these things. This is not about the knowing, it's about the being. This is not about information, it's about internal guidance that comes from the Spirit. You see, as we live our lives this way, we live lives that are governed by the Spirit. And so I pray today, I pray this week, I pray that as we move forward and look towards getting back together here in the sanctuary again, that your lives will be governed by the Beatitudes, that you'll have that inter internal guidance of the Spirit that gives life, as we live these things out, we'd be well-pleasing towards God. Would you join me? Let's pray, and then we'll worship together. Father, we thank you. We bless your name that these things are possible in the Spirit. We recognize they're impossible without the Spirit in us. And so, Lord, fill us with your Spirit to overflowing. Use us for your glory during these times. Bless us as your people. Lord, we bless you. Help us to live a blessed life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.